today's Bible, <coughs> excuse me, the, today's Bible reading will be taken from uh, Psalm 139. We'll be reading from verse 7 uh, to 12. May we stand up for the reading of the word. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the farthest of oceans, even there your hands will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. The word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Toba. Back in 1980, when uh, our first son was born, I began an annual tradition of uh, writing a review of the year's news with a bit of sarcasm and uh, a bit of Christian flavoring. So this year's time capsule is now published, and uh, there'll be some copies available on the table at the back where the food is after the service. And we have about 40 copies, and if those are gone, just write your name maybe on the list there, and we can, I can email you one. So just know that those are available. We are uh, looking at the life of Jacob, and uh, we're in Genesis chapter 28 today. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that uh, your relationship with the people in the Bible has so many parallels to our relationship with you. And in the Old Testament, the things that they experienced, we experience in an even greater way through Jesus. So we thank you, Lord, for what you could reveal to us today as we look at uh, this passage and see what you have to say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in our two previous episodes, we learned that it is not enough just to do God's will. You also have to do it God's way. Because you can do God's will your way, and that will usually backfire and could have some very serious consequences. Because in the spiritual life, the end does not justify the means. And that's exactly what happened to Jacob. 
God's will was that Jacob would receive the blessing. But Jacob decided to get that blessing through some cunning identity theft. He lied, he deceived, he hacked the trust fund of God's kingdom. And now there were consequences. And the most obvious was that his brother Esau was furious because it belonged to him. Genesis 27:41 says Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Jacob got the blessing, but now he had to run for his life, which must have been very traumatic because the blessing was rooted in the land God gave Abraham. And now Jacob had to leave that land. And it wasn't just go, go into the hills and hide until the coast is clear. His father sent him to Paddan Aram, which was 550 miles away in northwest Mesopotamia, what is today the country of Syria. 550 miles. That's further than from here to Fort McMurray. Well, Jacob did not see this coming. Verse 10 says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And unlike Esau, Jacob was not an outdoorsman. He preferred to be close to home. So this was unfamiliar territory to him. And can you imagine him trying to find uh, maybe the roads less traveled, always looking over his shoulder to see if Esau was on his trail? The life of a fugitive is a desperate and fearful one. What good is a blessing when there's a man tracker on your tra trail, when the bloodhounds have caught your scent? Esau was a skilled hunter. This wilderness was his natural habitat. He could decipher every footprint and recognize every sound. Jacob was helpless prey. But maybe God would protect him. But why should God do that? Not after what Jacob had done, his treachery. Who could blame God if he just gave up on him? He's probably glad to be rid of you. Guilt has many side effects, and one of the most serious is a feeling of being forsaken by God. For the first time in his life, Jacob felt that he was all alone. And the further he traveled from Beersheba, the more distant Jacob felt from God. Because even with a clear conscience, unfamiliar surroundings can disorient us spiritually. That's what happened to me. Uh, I was, when I was involved with uh, the university, I had a great relationship with God in the context of our youth group, in the context of Campus Crusade meetings, Lloyd's Rollercade, Peter's Drive-In, I knew who I was and, I, and how I fit in. And I saw God at work and I heard his voice almost every day. But then I went off to seminary in South Dakota. Have you been to the Dakotas? It has the worst winter blizzards. And in the summer the humidity is unbearable. And talk about scenery challenged. I went from the Rocky Mountains and the foothills to miles and miles of nothing but endless miles and miles. 
I'm sure there are people in that region who sincerely believe the earth is flat. And who could blame them? And the worst part was the seminary. Most of the profs were mild to moderate heretics. We even had one very hardcore skeptic. It was not what you would call evangelical education. It wasn't even that much about the Bible. It was mostly about theologians like Bultmann and Schliermacher and Orville Redenbacher, people like that. And I heard teachings that made my soul shudder. It left me disoriented. And as a consequence, I, I, I lost touch with God. I couldn't sense his presence. I didn't see him at work. I didn't hear from him for many months. Because our faith thrives in familiar places with predictable routines and consistent spiritual disciplines. So when that's taken away, we may feel lost. We, we can't get our bearings. Up is down, left is right, north is south. I had the same feeling when I was alone on the Tokyo subway. I couldn't even understand what, what the people were saying. Well, Jacob probably felt alienated and alone. 500 miles of unfamiliar road lay ahead of him. But even a hunted man can only run so far. Verse 11 says, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. This place was not that far from, uh, from the camp. It was a, a day's journey. And it was a foreboding sight as night approached. F.B. Mayer writes, the upland slopes are strewn with large sheets of bare rocks, mostly lying flat on their faces like huge fallen gravestones. It was appropriate because Jacob must have felt like his dream had died. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. And he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Wow! How about that? His dream hadn't died after all. He sees the stairway with, with angels. It probably wasn't one of those spiral staircases that you see in the Hollywood musicals. It was likely more in the style of the Mesopotamian pyramids. The temples with, steep, or with steps ascending up the very steep sides. Worshippers would climb these as they approached their gods with their offerings. I climbed one like that near Mexico City. It's about two-thirds the, the size of the pyramids in Egypt. And man, that was hard. It was so steep, it took hours. And the interesting thing was, as soon as I reached the summit, there were all these new agers lying in a big clump, just writhing around and, and trying to get all this cosmic energy, I guess, whatever they were doing. Well, these temples were considered to be stairways to eternity, direct access routes to heaven. The most ambitious of these was the Tower of Babel, which means it's time for another myth buster, because man cannot get to heaven through his own efforts. In fact, many who have climbed the ladder of spiritual enlightenment have found that it was leaning against the wrong wall. We can't scale the heights. It is God who has to lower the ladder down to us. 
And interestingly, it often rests on the lowest point in the topography. Jacob found it at the lowest point in his life. And it's also interesting that Esau probably spent hundreds of nights in this region during his hunting trips. But he never once saw this stairway. Jacob encountered it on his very first night. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Science fiction writers speculate about a parallel universe. Well, here it is. And it's a busy place, bustling with all kinds of activity, like the gate of an ancient city. Dynamic, energetic, like the marketplace or the bazaar of a sprawling metropolis. One writer compares this passage to a, the theater, where the play opens with a few actors standing in front of the curtain, and they're talking. Then all of a sudden, the curtain is raised to reveal a magnificent set, and now the play is seen in a whole different context as greater issues begin to unfold. Just imagine if the walls of this church collapsed out and so we could see what actually is going on behind the scenes. And we could see that we live and move and have our being in the glorious presence of the hosts of the Almighty. For Jacob, it had seemed like he'd lost contact with eternity. He may have feared that God was no longer involved in his life. He felt abandoned, maybe like Elijah had. Remember him, he cried out, I am alone, I am the last one, you might as well take my life. But God revealed to him that there was a much larger context. His kingdom was much bigger than Elijah thought. And his situation was 7,000 times better than Elijah thought it was. And here Jacob also gets to see the larger context. It looks like the entire labor force of heaven is involved in his life. He had a dream where he saw a stairway reaching to heaven with the angels of God, ascending and descending on it. Imagine waking up one morning and finding the prime minister and his cabinet sitting in your living room, discussing ideas about how to improve your standard of living. Well, maybe not this prime minister, but I'm, I'm referring to the next one. Wouldn't that be amazing? Well, Jacob knew that he was, he was not alone. Archangels and seraphim were arriving and departing, all of heaven was involved in his life. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We have almost no idea what's going on beyond the visible. Those angels are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation, even when those heirs are in exile. Incidentally, do you have someone in your family who is in exile? A prodigal, a slider, someone who is far from home? The enemy is going to try to convince you that their situation is hopeless because God has given up on them. But don't believe that. All the skilled labor in the supernatural realm is involved in the ongoing project of bringing prodigals home. Jesus will leave the 99 
righteous, and search for the one that's lost. That's his priority. That's what he's doing right now. They're not alone. In the passage that Toba read in Psalm 139, David reflects on this. He says, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, for darkness is as light to you. No one can hide from the Holy Spirit. The one who came to seek and save the lost is still on active duty with his search and rescue mission. Verse 13. There above it, above this ladder, stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east to the north and to the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. And I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Jacob had heard his father speak about these promises. And now he was hearing them personally right from the top. God says, I will give you. You know, it's like those moments when God's word just all of a sudden comes alive. You can listen to sermons, you can read the Bible, and it can all seem kind of generic, impersonal. It's a little remote. It's intended for others. It's especially meant for the person sitting beside you. So give them a little nudge for punctuation. The Bible is an interesting history book. But then there are these moments when all of a sudden you realize that God is talking to you. This is for you. This promise has your name on it. You know, it's like, like watching a, the lottery draw on TV. It doesn't mean anything unless they call your number. Well, in the Bible, God is calling your number. Or rather, he's calling your name because we know God has a problem with lotteries. At least that's what they keep telling me. But there, there's a point at which faith, our faith is more than believing all the right things and understanding correct theology and doctrine. There's a point at which it becomes personal. Don't let anyone take that away from you. God said, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You, Jacob, and your offspring. Did Jacob deserve that? Of course not. Not right after his most notorious crime. So why didn't God wait until Jacob truly repented and reformed his unrighteous ways? Well, it's because God knows what he's doing. It's like electricity. Jacob was someone who carried a negative charge. He was always less important. 
He was always the, the last. And that can give you kind of a negative self-image. So how do you bring a person like that closer to God? Do you subject them to shock treatment? Fire and brimstone? Hell and damnation? Fact is that condemnation will only drive them further away. Because a negative charge always repels another negative charge. To draw them in, you have to change polarity. Only a positive charge will attract a negative. We see Jesus doing this also with the Pharisees, for example. They were positively charged with hyper-self-righteousness. And so Jesus used the negative charge of condemnation. But with us, with us who are wretched sinners, he always reaches out in love. That's why God pronounces this blessing. It is unconditional. It doesn't reflect anything about Jacob's merit. This is totally unconditional. It's simply something God does because he wants to. Because that's who he is. That's his love. And that's how he treats us as well. Because when I came back to God, it wasn't because I was afraid of hell. I simply realized that God loved me at my very worst. And that's when it started to get personal. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it works. F.B. Mayer says, There are none who fear sin so much as those who know that they are greatly forgiven. And that's why they call it amazing grace. Verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Do you ever have those experiences? There's places in our life where we think, you know, God is not doing anything here. There's no evidence at all that God is involved with this. We look at our decadent society and conclude, surely the Lord is not in this place. Anyone looking at that dysfunctional family in Genesis, at those twins with dueling egos, anyone would come to the same conclusion. They're hopeless. We see evidence of the enemy's work. The thief has come to steal and kill and destroy. We look at our culture and we see so much that has been so much damage that Satan has done. The thief has been here. And we don't see many indications that God is at work. Where is the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. That's why I've learned not to use the word impossible anymore. I've used that word so many times and I've had to retract it. I've replaced it with the word that I learned from the Princess Bride. Remember that word? Inconceivable. That's a much better word because it's more realistic. It's unlikely, it's hard to imagine, it's inconceivable, but it's not impossible. Not when there is a staircase. And all those angels who are ministering those who inherit salvation 
all doing the will of God, carrying it out on the earth. Jacob awoke and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Do you have a place in your life that seems off limits to God's grace? Satan's got it all locked up. He dominates. Is there a lonely place? A fearful place? Maybe a failure that's come to define your life? A disappointment that seems terminal? A prayer that remains unanswered? Well, that's exactly where God sets up his staircase. The Lord is in that place, whether you're aware of it or not. Verse 17 says, He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. As far as communicating with God, this was a Wi-Fi hotspot. In fact, this experience was only the beginning. The best was yet to come. Because this scene would reappear in the New Testament. In John chapter 1, when Jesus is gathering his disciples together. It says in verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Nathanael was, was surprised that Jesus could see into the very core of his being, his heart and soul, and asked, how do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. And then he added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There it is again. That's the staircase. If you want to know where the spiritual hotspot is, look to Jesus. That's where the action is. As 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Jesus is the Wi-Fi hotspot in the Christian life. So if you feel lonely or lost, if you feel discouraged, if you feel unworthy, unforgivable, if you feel disoriented in our culture and you realize this world is just not our home, we don't recognize the place anymore. This is enemy territory. When you see the darkness increasing and decadence abounding, there's only one response. Only one thing to do. Come to Jesus. He is the gate. He is the way. He is the life. Do I hear an amen? amen. Father, we thank you so much that we are never alone. In spite of what our feelings may tell us, in spite of all the noise that comes from our fallen world, we are never alone. 
you have never forsaken us. And Jesus is the evidence of that. He is the one who reveals your love and your grace and your constant care for us. And we can just, whatever happens in our life, may that turn us in the direction of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to sing a song here that's uh, probably not too familiar. It's a, it's a simple song, but what I really like about this song is it's, it looks at many different experiences we have in life and recommends that no matter what we're going through, just come to Jesus with that. Don't turn in any other direction. Don't go anywhere else. Just keep coming to Jesus. Make that a habit in everything that you're doing. So make this a commitment to yourself that you will always turn to Jesus. You'll never turn away. Let's stand together as we sing.